0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Here's what I would tell my five-year-old, but it's so bad. Knock, knock. Who's there? Dwayne. Dwayne who? Dwayne the bathtub. I'm drowning.
2: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis and from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download the culture show that gives you everything you need to win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from
0: Oscar-winning screenwriter Diablo Cody. That'll break the ice. Her new film, Ricky and the Flash, is out this week. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with the star of another film opening this week, Jason Siegel.
2: Yes, he talks about playing late literary luminary David Foster Wallace in the movie The End of the Tour. Other guests this hour include novelist J. Ryan Straddle, and Friedman from the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, and two cats, comedian Bobcat Goldthwait and musician Thundercat.
0: Hope you're not allergic, but first, it's a dinner party, you see. So let's start with Small Talks. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Zimbabwe is in mourning for an iconic lion from the country's Wangi National
3: Park. Intense wildfires across Northern California. The 2015 Special Olympics is now underway in Los Angeles.
0: Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Ann Friedman. She is a writer for, among other things, New York Magazine and the like. She also co-hosts the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. And what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
4: We're going to be talking about moss. Moss in Japan and the women who like to view it. Oh,
0: interesting. This is a thing? So
4: apparently in the past three or four years, there's been an increase in uh, women who are interested in going on these mountain excursions to get up close and personal with various types of moss.
2: Moss, moss. You're talking about like the moss? The
4: furry green stuff.
2: That doesn't grow on a rolling stone. Exactly. Not on
4: the rolling stone. On very still stones and logs and other peaceful forest items. They like to crouch down on all fours, peek at it up close, spritz it with water and watch it open. Interesting. That
0: sounds lovely to me i mean it does beg the question is specifically women this is a this is a ladies thing
4: according to the japan times it is primarily a ladies thing um, mm. And there's, a, there's like a little bit of sexist, you know, because women appreciate the delicate things, the finer things. That's in what some they way. say?
0: This is why this is happening?
4: Well, this is what one of the male excursion leaders says. Uh-huh. The women themselves sort of say, like, I'm into moss as a metaphor for collective living. <laughs> and isn't it interesting huh. that it can grow where there is no soil? Yeah. Which seems to me a little deeper than women appreciate beauty. Also,
2: moss is still, unlike the modern world, you know, it's a break from the craziness of everyday life. Especially in Japan.
0: Also,
4: just tactile. The the article did not describe them feeling the moss, but for me, I always want to touch moss. I don't know about you guys. Maybe this is because I'm a woman. Hmm. Well, here (laughs) in L.A., we don't have a lot of moss. If I
2: wanted to touch moss, I wouldn't have it growing in the corners of my bathtub. (laughs) I I, kind of, like, let moss just do its thing.
4: And here's the real gender divide with moss. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) There
0: it is. Uh, Ann Friedman, thanks for the small talk.
4: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: And now time
2: for cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then dare a bartender to capture its essence in cocktail form. Yes, it's like history class with a chaser of booze. Wow. (laughs) We did it. This week, we're taking you back to the turn of the 20th century, when a new invention helped the world slow down. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
3: Before there were cars, there was the traffic signal. It was December 1868, and in London, England, pedestrians were increasingly worried about the growing number of horse-drawn carriages stampeding unregulated through the streets. Enter John Peake Knight. He had designed signals to regulate traffic on Britain's railroads. So he came up with something similar for street traffic — a tall pole with a little flag A horizontal flag meant stop. A flag at an angle meant proceed with caution. At night, different colored gas lamps did the same job. The new signal worked great, except one design flaw. It had to be operated manually by a policeman who stood beside it in the cold all day long. And to add injury to insult, a month after the signals were installed, one of the gas lamps blew up in an officer's face. Britain quickly scrapped the whole project. It was 46 years before the first electric traffic lights lit up, this time at an intersection in Cleveland, Ohio. A signal stood at each corner with a red light and a green light. These were also operated by a policeman, but with two major improvements. The lights didn't explode, the officer got to sit in a nice, warm booth. By the way, since the early days of railroads, red meant stop. But at first, white meant go. That got changed when the red lens fell out of a stop signal, exposing the white light behind it. A conductor disastrously mistook stop for go, the ultimate crossed signal.
2: So that was the history lesson. Now for the cocktail to go along with it. We are joined by Michael Seal of Labatros, a bar and restaurant in Cleveland, right off Euclid Avenue, where the first working electric stoplight was installed. Michael, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make?
5: Well, thank you for having me on. Um, the hard thing was actually coming up with a name, because the stoplight is already a drink.
2: Oh, I didn't realize that. What is that drink?
5: Yeah, that is actually um, creme de mince creme the banana, as well as grenadine. Ah. So it's a layered drink. It's a layered yeah. shot, and actually sounds not so appetizing to me, but I'm sure that everybody else <laughs> likes it.
2: But it looks like green, yellow, and red, so I, now I get right. the, the principle behind that. <laughs> exactly. That red part would certainly stop me from drinking it in the first place because it sounds <laughs> gross. But, all right, so, so what's in your drink?
5: So the Morgan Euclid is a shot and a quarter of chartreuse. Okay. Same amount of gin. And then um, a half an ounce of fresh lime juice.
2: So you're putting the lime in the gin. Does that add color? Because it doesn't seem like well, that would the, make the color yellow.
5: It's a little bit, but it, it just adds nice citrus.
2: All right, so we're talking flavor. We're not talking aesthetics with that. Correct. And then what's the what else do you add?
5: Garnish with two things. Drop a cherry at the bottom there and then um you rim the glass with a wonderful fresh lemon peel
2: i see so the cherry is a is a bit of red for stop but that's buried so you don't barely see it <laughs> correct and the lemon is perhaps the the slow down at the top of the glass you got it and so are you a native of cleveland are you from there
5: well i wasn't born here but i pretty much grew up here when i was four
2: are, are people in cleveland better drivers than in other places because they've had the stoplight there for so long with-
5: um you know, all the drivers in front of me never seem to be very good drivers. The ones behind me usually are pretty good. Right, yeah. yeah. That's,
2: that seems to be universal. Enrico, we should note Salt Lake City, Utah also claims to be home of America's first stoplight. Uh-huh. History's a little fuzzy. Okay. But seriously? You want to argue over who invented the stoplight? <laughs> like, is that really going to rake in tourist dollars? How does that? Yeah, come to Utah, birthplace of road rage. It is, it's not enticing. Uh, maybe people from L.A. will visit. Anyway, people, drink recipes are at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've talked about Moss Tourism, learned a little history, and now this party needs some music. And here to DJ is a man who goes by the name Thundercat, but his driver's license says Stephen Bruner. For a while, he played bass for the seminal thrash band Suicidal Tendencies, but lately he's become known for his funky, jazzy work with musicians like Flying Lotus and Kendrick Lamar. His new album earned Pitchfork's Best New Music accolade. Here he is with song suggestions.
6: Hey, this is uh, Steven Thundercat Bruner, and I'm gonna ruin your dinner party with this dinner party soundtrack, which you should have never given me power over. Number one would be Kenny Loggins' Heart to Heart, because I think every man needs to understand this level of mandom.
1: You ain't crazy, I gonna lie more. What you feel
4: that there's a reason for. I wanna
6: do I mean, he just kind of tells the truth in his songs a lot, you know? What this song I feel is about is the crossroads that you come to in a relationship oh so often where you don't know what the hell is going on. <laughs> like, you don't know why you like this person. You don't know why you can't leave. You're just lost. Don't
4: turn away. This is our last
6: Kenny Loggins plays a genre of music we like to call Yacht Rock. And the reason why I'm a fan of it is because I'm a fan of debauchery. And I would think that debauchery happens on yachts on a consistent basis that we cannot account for. Because there's no cell phone service. You know, there's no accounting for the amount of money and drugs you can carry with you on a yacht. And I would think that that equates to party. So, Yacht Rock, we love you. The next song that I choose is Seal, Crazy. Crazy. It's got that, you know, real weird ethereal kind of feel to it and you have to read between the lines a bit. He's kind of letting us know that he is crazy. You know, it's like we can all relate on some level. It's mellow enough to where if you guys want to two-step and shake your shoulders to it, that's cool. If you also want to run and jump through your neighbor's windowpane naked, Totally goes with both of those. There's not really a medium to how crazy you can get with this song. You get a bit. For my third song, when the party's going. You know what I'm saying? Thought it was a drought by future. I just took a piss b- and I seen coding coming up. This is a new song by Future. It just came out. you know. I was listening to it with Flying Lotus on the way back from working with Hannibal Burris on his show uh, Why on Comedy Central. And, you know, me and Lotus are sitting in the car. You know, you feel like a million bucks when you do something that feels like it's worth something. You cut Future on, and it's like, yes. This is exactly what's needed right now. Got to pull up the cash, can't stay in the house because it's too much to Rip the photo but now I got up the rent I was too far behind. You can hear the raspiness but I mean that's very musical and pretty to the ears to Do what I had to do get warm no, no, it's a lot my mind. This is happening when you're like so drunk that you can't talk over the music and you don't want to get close enough to your friend to smell their breath so you just like pat them on the back and say yeah anytime they seem like they're coming at you to say something serious they're not paying attention either. You're kind of like, what? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna close this party with one of my own songs. It's called Them Changes.
7: Nobody move, there's blood on the floor. And I can find
6: you know everybody goes through relationship, you know, issues and ups and downs, and like this was a therapeutic way for me to deal with things that have been going on with me. That's just me being honest. Here's where that Kenny Loggins comes back in as an inspiration.
3: It must
2: Dinner Party Playlist, courtesy of Stephen Bruner, a.k.a. Thundercat. His new album is called The Beyond, Where the Giants Roam, and he's on tour right now. All right, coming up, Jason Segel, star of the new David Foster
0: Wallace biopic, ponders deep questions about fame and identity. Can we Snapchat a selfie? Whoa. Yeah, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's
2: Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we make screenwriter Diablo Cody totally cynical about L.A. Yay. And in a few minutes, author J. Ryan Straddle introduces us to a guy who can't wait to turn his kid into a foodie. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's actor Jason Segel. He gained fame on comedy
0: shows like the beloved Freaks and Geeks and How I Met Your Mother, and in films like the Muppets reboot, which he also co-wrote. But his new role is quite a departure. He plays author David Foster Wallace in the film The End of the Tour. It's about the four days Wallace spent with Rolling Stone writer David Lipsky while on tour to promote his book Infinite Jest. The book went on to become a modern classic, and 12 years later Wallace tragically took his own life. I first asked Jason how he got the role.
8: Well, you know how they say, like, you don't want to see how legislation is made, sausage and legislation? (laughs) Or pornography, I believe, is the Uh, third one. Right, okay, yeah. Well, my experience (laughs) with this project is that the script got sent to me.
0: (laughs) It just magically appeared.
8: Yeah, well, yes, and I'm self-aware enough to know that when the David Foster Wallace script comes across your desk the first sentence isn't somebody get Jason Siegel on the phone <laughs> but i wasn't privy to that part of the uh, of the dynamic
0: i see did you uh, here's the requisite softball question of course the first thing that would go through my mind is oh no no i have to read a thousand page long book yeah. infinite jest which he's best known for did you to prepare for this role did you manage to get through it did you i read? did
8: you know what i got through it with some help from three really great guys who worked in my local bookshop and we did uh, a system where we would each read 100 pages a week autonomously and then get together on Sundays and talk about what we had read. Uh-huh. And you got the w-
0: Cliffs notes in a way, kind of.
8: Well, no, because we were reading, I was reading everything very thoroughly. Um, what I had was sort of a group environment to then discuss the themes. And uh-huh. I think that this movie the themes are an extension of the themes you know in Infinite Jest and in, a, in an amazing speech he gave called This is Water. Yep. What's raised in all of them the the common thread is this question of where are we going to place our value if we want to be able to sleep at night? Because mm-hmm. we're sort of sold it's a very American idea that where we should place our value is somewhere in the achievement and uh entertainment and pleasure zone that if we (laughs) accumulate enough stuff yeah so that we can sit around and watch tv (laughs) and drink a beer that that should make us feel satisfied and somehow it doesn't you find out it doesn't and i think you spend your 20s sort of toiling under the delusion that you don't feel good because you're just not there yet
0: Mm, you haven't got enough stuff or the best stuff that's right
8: and that's how they keep selling you stuff (laughs) you know and then finally you reached the point that I think is, is right where we catch these four days. This really terrifying moment where now everything that you have set out to accomplish has come true, and yet you still feel the same.
0: Actually, I think we have a clip that kind of illustrates this. This is a scene from End of the Tour where David Foster Wallace is being interviewed on a plane, and he's talking about a time in his late 20s when he felt like his writing career was over and he was very depressed. I felt really bad.
8: I did not want to feel that, and so I did all sorts of stuff. I would Mm -hmm. drink real heavy, I would strangers. Mm. Sometimes I would not drink at all, not drink at all for like two weeks, but instead I would run 10 miles every morning in a desperate... ...very American, I will fix this somehow by taking radical action sort of thing.
2: And here you are promoting this acclaimed book. That's not bad.
0: David, this is nice. This is not real. You have had some amount of fame pretty much since you were 19 years old on Freaks and Geeks. I can imagine there's some empathy for Wallace there. At what point did you come to this realization that it's it's not real?
8: Yeah, well, I think it was... uh, I was starting to feel this way as I approached my 30s. I think you just start thinking about different stuff. But really what happened for me was as the TV show was coming to an end... Not this is
0: when you were older, so not Freaks and Geets. Uh, How I met your mother That's
8: right. The, the TV show was coming to an end. I was also um you know part of what happens in in Hollywood is you do a movie or a couple movies and people become familiar and acquainted and with a certain version of you. Mm. And if those movies do well, then you are offered the opportunity to do many more movies like those. (laughs) Sure. And I did a bunch and I was reaching a point where I was bored with that. And at the same time, the TV show was ending. And then I read this script and David Foster Wallace has this line where he says, I have to face the reality of where I am now, which is being 34 years old and alone in a room with a piece of paper. Mm. You know, for me, as somebody who writes and kind of made my way creating my own material, I felt exactly that yeah. way. Like, I'm about to start from scratch again <laughs> because the stuff that I'm interested in doing at this point in my life is nothing like what I've done before, and I'm going to have to do this from the beginning. And this terrible question of will the magic happen again? You know, if you yeah. write if you write Infinite Jest... Yeah, and then well, it comes out, and then you find out that what's supposed to happen now is you're supposed to do that
0: again. Yes. <laughs> How many? There's a question I'm going to ask you in a minute, which is the question you uh, would least like to be asked at a party. And so many people have answered that with, what is your next project? Yeah. It's like, let me have this project, for God's sake.
8: Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I moved out of L.A. a while ago because what is happening here is this business. And that's great. That's I'm very lucky to be a part of this business. but. You know, here I'm surrounded by billboards about what my contemporaries and people I look up to are doing. And um, it's not surprising that you walk around feeling never quite like you're enough. Mm -hmm. And we, we are, you know, like if you, I think, are being nice to the people around you and are trying to take care of yourself and like do a little exercise, and then are working as hard as you can at what you do, then um, you're
0: entitled to have a little bit of peace. Oh, God, that sounds so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that it? That's the secret? We've solved it? Yeah, it's called Healthtronics. Thanks. I'm going to start a religion. <laughs> All right, trademark yeah. that. Yeah, totally. So here's the question that uh, I foreshadowed earlier, which we ask everyone on the show. Yeah. Uh, if we were to meet you at a party, what question should we not ask you? Oh. Mm. Uh, maybe um,
8: can we Snapchat a selfie? <laughs> you're not a big social media mediaite are you no i just like it's so interesting because i really like meeting people and i really like interaction i can tell yeah and so then you meet somebody and they want to like snapchat a selfie and i i tend to say no i'd rather not take a picture but can i shake your hand hmm. which to me is a much more personal interaction but so interesting people their face turns to disappointment <laughs> like yeah but what about my proof (laughs) that's right physical contact and actual conversation is not enough yeah they say my my friends will never believe me and i think well do you have a reputation as being a liar (laughs) stop lying about meeting celebrities
0: Jason Segel, he stars in the excellent new film, The End of the Tour. It's in theaters now. And
2: speaking of Instagram, Mm. as media guys, it's part of our job to be on there. You'll find us at Dinner Party DNLD. That's right. No picture of Jason, of course, but that's cool because I have the tape to prove I met him.
1: And now, time to eavesdrop.
2: Minnesota native J. Ryan Straddle tapped into his Midwest roots and meats and pretty much anything edible as inspiration for his debut book. It recently won the Faulkner Society's annual novel competition and the LA Times listed it as a must-read for the summer. Today we overhear him read an excerpt.
7: Hi, my name is Jay Ryan Straddle. I'm the author of Kitchens of the Great Midwest, which is the story of a young Minnesotan woman named Eva Torvald who endures a difficult childhood, to become the mysterious chef behind an opulent supper club. Eva's father, Lars, is also a chef. He is extremely eager to pass his love of food on to his newborn daughter before she's even out of the hospital. And that's what this section is about. In the same fashion that a musical parent may curate their child's exposure to certain songs, Lars had spent weeks plotting a menu for his baby daughter's first months. Week one, no teeth. So, homemade guacamole. Pureed prunes. Do infants like prunes? Homemade honey crisp applesauce. Hummus. From canned chickpeas? Maybe wait for week two. Olive tapenade. Ask Sherry Dubcheck about the best kind of olives for a newborn. Week two. Well, still no teeth, so definitely hummus. And the rest, same as above, until teeth. Week 12, teeth, pork shoulder, pureed or maybe make a pork-based demi Vegetable spaghetti squash, now what kid wouldn't love this? It'll blow her mind. How lucky she is to be born during winter squash season. Week 16, time for guilty pleasures. Mom's chicken wild rice casserole, corn dogs, and finally, mom's carrot cake. This meal plan seemed like a sound strategy to Lars. His main worry was to chop nuts in the carrot cake recipe. He'd heard somewhere that a child could get a nut allergy from eating nuts too soon. But how soon was too soon? He had to talk to the obstetrician, Dr. Latch, who had a thick mustache, kind eyes, and what Lars interpreted as a can-do attitude. In his office, Dr. Latch listened to Lars's question and then looked at the young man the way someone might regard a toddler who's holding a buck knife. You want to feed carrot cake? to a four-month-old, Dr. Latch asked. Not a lot of carrot cake, Lars said. I mean, just a small portion, a baby portion. I'm just concerned about the nuts in the recipe. I mean, I guess I could make it without nuts, but my mom always made it with nuts. What do you think? Eighteen months, at the earliest. Probably wait until age two to be safe. Well, I, I could be wrong, but I remember my younger siblings eating carrot cake really young. There was a picture of my brother Jarl on the day he turned one. They gave him a little carrot cake birthday cake and he smeared it in his hair. That's the best outcome in that situation, probably, Dr. Latch said. Well, now he's bald. Looking over your dietary plan here, I'd have more immediate reservations. Well, like what? Well, pork shoulder to a three-month-old baby. Not advisable. Pureed, maybe? Lars asked. I could braise it first. Or maybe just roast the bones and make pork stock for a demi-glace. That wouldn't be my first choice, though. You work at Hutmacher's, right? Dr. Latch asked. You do make an excellent pork shoulder but give it at least two years. Two years? I understand your eagerness to share your life's passion with your first child. The time will come, trust me. But for now, just breast milk and formula for the first three months. That's awful, Lars said. Maybe for you, Dr. Latch said. Now I'm gonna refer you to the most vigilant pediatrician I know. Writer J. Ryan
2: Straddle, giving us a taste of his debut novel, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, came out this week, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
0: And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. For change the
2: part of the show where we talk about tiger nuts
0: all right so you've been delightedly saying tiger nuts <laughs> all week what are these things
2: mm-hmm. all right well they have nothing to do with tigers good thank god or nuts <laughs> But Uh devotees say they are a superfood.
0: Okay, so like chia seeds, all these supposedly nutrient-rich foods. That's
2: right. The tiger nut is the latest contender. They're suddenly everywhere in dried form and in horchata, a milky drink made from them. Hmm. So to learn more, I met George Papanastasados of tiger nut distributor Organic Gemini at one of his New York shops. If tiger nuts aren't nuts, I asked him, then what are they?
9: Well said, not a nut. Tiger nut, despite the name, is not a nut. It's a small root that um, is indigenous to Africa and Mediterranean.
2: So, so they're related to a uh, potato?
9: Potato, any other like carrots, beets. So why is it called a tiger nut then? Good question. I don't know. For the same reason that peanuts call a peanut. Even though they're secretly legumes. That's right. How many tiger nut jokes are made? How many name jokes are made a day in front of you? Well, every time I'm trying to explain the tiger nut, everybody's like, who's, who called the tiger? So there is a lot of jokes.
2: They're called tiger nuts, right, because they have stripes. Yeah, they kind of do
9: have stripes. Yeah. Try this one. So how have you prepared this one? I'm going to taste this raw one. This hasn't been processed. This has been harvested, washed, and then sun-dried. And it looks like a dry, like if you bought garbanzo beans or something. Correct. I mean, when it's fully hydrated, it's rounded. It looks like a little, like a small ball. All
2: right. I'm going to try one.
9: It's like a walnut, but a slightly sweeter. Correct.
2: So before it looks like this, what does it look like? Where do tiger nuts come from?
9: It's a long grass. In Africa, it goes up to three to four feet high. So the same way you do uh, potatoes, they take them off the soil and then they let them dry for three months.
2: So I'd never heard of tiger nuts until recently. What's the history of this tuber?
9: If we take it very, uh, all the way back, it started in the um, Mesopotamia, which is like the um, the Middle East. And Egypt, right? And Egypt, Egyptians, we know, um, For a fact, they cultivating Taginets, There are historical records that uh, the pharaohs uh, pharaohs. enjoyed a very sacred elixir. Something close to what we're making today, our horchata.
2: So for people who don't know, can you explain what horchata is generally? And then we'll talk about how you make it here at Organic Gemini.
9: Well, horchata started in um, Valencia, Spain, back in the 13th century. A legend has it that um, the king of Spain, James, exclaimed, this is golden darling. First time they tried horchata.
2: This is golden darling. That's great.
9: And that's the name. For uh, whoever speaks Spanish, oro is gold and chata in Catalan means darling. So the two words combined makes horchata.
2: So it's like an exclamation.
9: Uh, That's what the legend has it. All right. Well, we can accept the legend if it's a good story. Then um, we know from 13th century, we have the... um, the people in Valencia making horchata, then the uh, same people that immigrate from Spain to South America knew of horchata, had no access to tiger nuts, and they started making it from rice, nuts, seeds. That's why now modern horchata is known from rice. Yeah,
2: modern horchata is usually rice-based, and you know you can find it in Mexican restaurants and South American restaurants, and it's usually kind of sweet.
9: That's our main challenge, trying to educate people. The original horchata is not made from rice, but comes from tiger nuts and it has so much more nutritional value. It's not made from from sugar, doesn't use any sugar, especially not in our recipe.
2: So how do you make it? How do do you make your uh, unsweetened classic tiger nut horchata?
9: Well, we're treating um, tiger nuts as any other nut, and we are soaking them into water, then we cold press them, and that's about it. We're putting into bottles, and that's our unsweetened horchata. I'm looking at it some now, it has like a milky quality to it. Pretty milky, Uh, it's pretty sweet, super creamy. You're going to try it.
2: All right, I'm going to try it right now here. And it's, it's thin. It's not very viscous. It's like, kind of like a lighter milk. It's tasty. It's not super sweet. It, it has a coconut undertone.
9: Correct. It has, um, you see, it has some coconut, the Others think thing that has uh, an almond to it, yeah. vanilla. And
2: so why would I want to drink this? I have a lot of options when I go to the to go to the store. I, I prefer tea, wine, and martinis.
9: Why would I want to incorporate horchata? Well, uh, that won't give you any of that. But here's what you get: you get a lot of iron, you get calcium, you get as much calcium as dairy, and then you also get potassium. It has more potassium than coconut water. And in addition to that, it has a very unique fiber content. Oxford University published a study about a year ago showing that tiger nuts were the primary source of food of our paleo ancestors.
2: our paleo ancestors and as you know paleo the paleo diet is very popular which
9: means people who eat raw foods and whole foods correct and then they actually uh, came to the conclusion why our ancestors intuitively love this food tiger nut has the same macronutrient profile as red meat and liver so
2: wait okay so tiger nuts have the same micronutrient profile of red meat and liver
9: when you look at the ratio between fat carbs iron calcium it stands against red meat, liver, or even breast milk.
2: Whoa, so this not only will this replace liver and onions, it will replace mothers?
9: Uh, sort of. What
2: about liver horchata? Liv- same same nutritional value. That will make me vomit. George Papa of Organic Gemini. You can find their tiger nuts at stores around the country. And you can find liver horchata nowhere.
0: <laughs> Alright, coming up we hear from comedian Bobcat Goldthwaite and screenwriter Diablo Cody when The Dinner Party Download continues.
2: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for hanging out with us this weekend. I am Rico Galliano. Coming up in the
0: third and final installment of cat-related material on today's show, <laughs> Comedian Bobcat Goldthwaite tells us about his new film, examining the life of legendary comic Barry Crimmins.
10: He's got a beer and he's smoking. And in my mind, when I think back on it, just smoke was coming out of everything, like his ears.
0: Quite a character. But first, let's learn some etiquette.
10: Yes,
2: each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is screenwriter and producer Diablo Cody. She won an Oscar for her debut screenplay, Juno. She also wrote, created, and produced the critically acclaimed Showtime series United States of Terra, and her new film is called Ricky and the Flash. It stars Merle Streep as a woman who left her husband and children to become a rock musician and years later reconnects with them. It hits theaters this coming Friday Diablo, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for coming. So it's uh, the film is
0: this family comedy drama, as you could probably tell from the description. It's full of all these unusual details and characters, which makes it feel very personal, I have to say. What started you down the path of writing this thing?
1: Well, there were a couple of things that inspired me. Um, I have children now, mm. and I find myself obsessing over what they're going to think of me when they get older, because I am kind of a messy person. (laughs) And I also obviously have this kind of off-the-wall career that I'm very committed to. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder, you know, when they're adults, are they going to think it was cool that their mom wrote movies, or are they just going to resent me for, you know, having been kind of wrapped up in all this? So Mm. I just thought, you know, I want to write a movie about somebody who is at a place in their life where they're looking back at the decisions they made and trying to decide, you know, did I do the right thing as a mom? Well,
2: look, there's this great scene midway through the film where Ricky points out Mick Jagger had many kids and more or less spent their, you know, he spent their childhood traipsing around living a rock star life yeah. and no one batted an eye, whereas she, a woman, is supposedly a terrible person for doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And... And in a way, is this like the Diablo Cody thesis statement? Or You know, a lot of your films feature these strong women living as they choose.
1: Here's the thing. Like, I see that scene as kind of comical because she obviously isn't Mick Jagger. <laughs> you know, the fact that yes. she sees herself as the equivalent to Mick Jagger is funny well, to me.
2: She has the narcissism of Mick Jagger.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but she also makes a good point, which is that... Uh, If a guy is off providing for his family, that's seen as a noble thing. And if a woman does the same, she's often seen as absent, you know, Mm -hmm. or lacking in some way. So that was in a way. Yeah, I guess that was the Diablo Cody thesis statement, which I like that (laughs) phrase. But um, you can take it. It also I think it's a complicated scene because. She's also not making her point in the best way.
0: Yeah, in the middle of a performance in front of a bar full of patrons. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, this is, you know, Ricky is in a bar band, and this movie really seems in love with music. Over the course of it, I think we see Ricky's band play five or six entire songs. Yeah. Your director is Jonathan Demme, who, of course, in addition to Silence of the Lambs, made some of the greatest rock documentaries ever. Was all that music your idea or his?
1: I had written all those performances into the script, but it was... I had always assumed that they would play out in, like, 30 seconds, movie style. Mm. Whereas Jonathan Demme (laughs) is, like, very, very passionate about music and is, you know, known for making one of the greatest concert films of all time. And
0: Stop making sense. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and he wanted to really let those performances play out and use them as part of the narrative.
2: They're mostly cover tunes. Did you pick the songs?
1: A couple of them were in the original script, but what was fun about the movie actually going into production was we all got to kind of collaborate on what we thought should be in there. Mm. Because when The Flash came together as a real band... We had to think, Okay, what are what are their strengths as a band? Like, what kind of stuff do they want to play? What does Meryl want to sing? You know, she would she would play something with the band and then decide if she was comfortable with it. And if she was, we would like move forward. What did she
0: toss out? She's like, I'll have have nothing to do with this.
1: You know what? Um, I, I strongly suggested that she sing a Here I Go Again on My Own by Whitesnake. Yes. And Right? And like, I, I don't think anybody liked that
0: <laughs> Oh, come I on. I like that
2: idea. That would have been amazing.
0: Yeah,
1: I sat down and showed her the video on YouTube and I was like, what am I doing?
2: Yeah, it features the model. Tawny
1: Katane. That's right. Yeah, It was her name. Rolling
2: around a car and... Yeah, Not many clothes.
1: And that, so you can imagine me sitting there being like, no, you should see this to Meryl This is classy. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Clearly, you know how to comport yourself in delicate situations. Are you ready to answer our listeners' etiquette questions? Yes, I am. Here's one from Elizabeth in Argyle, Texas. And Elizabeth asks, the new party status quo seems to be choose an online radio station or Spotify playlist and just let it go, commercials and all. Is it okay for people to inflict these commercials on their party guests?
1: I don't expect everybody to have like a premium subscription where they're <laughs> going to have commercial free music. I agree that it's annoying and it kind of kills the vibe. Yeah. However, and I'm probably like veering from the question at this point, the one thing that I really can't stand is you're having a party, the music mm-hmm. is on, and people are like grabbing the phone going, oh, I just heard this amazing song. You guys all need to hear it. And it's like, no. Uh, like, yeah. don't DJ. Yep.
2: There's one DJ.
1: Yeah, just let one person control the music, and it should be the host.
2: And what would be worse for Elizabeth would be if someone had a favorite commercial they wanted to play. <laughs> like, that would be really it's My
1: favorite Grubhub commercial.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from JR in LA. Mm-hmm. JR writes, my friend picks the worst karaoke songs. They're slow, and not even ironically slow. Ugh. No one's heard of them, so it's tough to sing along. Should I suggest some alternate tunes, or is that forbidden in karaoke land?
1: There's a major thing you have to take into consideration here. Are these okay. drinking karaoke people, or are they sober <laughs> karaoke people? Because if you if you drink... It's very easy to wait until you're both like five drinks in and then bust the guy's chops and be like, you know, the songs you pick really suck, but I love you. You can get away with saying it because you're intoxicated, yeah. and but they'll still take it to heart. Okay. Whereas if you're sober, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to suffer through it.
2: All right, there, there you, you go. go. And if this person likes slow songs, then I think they'll probably be open to this conversation. Oh,
1: yeah, because they're just a maudlin person. Yeah. That's right, that's yeah.
2: right. You Actually, you could just sing it to them in a ballad.
1: Yeah.
0: Please turn off this music. Here's something from Jackie and Raleigh, North Carolina. Keep in mind, by the way, North Carolina, summertime. Gotcha. Uh, the question is, what, if anything, should I have said to my overnight guest who waited until I went to bed and then snuck out and cranked up the AC?
1: You know, I, I'm i actually at an age where I, like, put out clean linens and towels for people. Oh, uh, yeah. You're a different level. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm, I've gotten to that mom age where, like, I want my guests to be very comfortable. Yes. So mm-hmm. I would be okay with this. But if you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have been like, ugh.
2: Because it could be a financial consideration because your electric bill goes up. And if you're at a point in your life where an extra 20 bucks you know, is going to hurt you, but guys, yes, the guest should behave. Guys,
0: rally North Carolina in summertime. If you have AC, you should probably have it on. But right? she
1: didn't say that it was off. She said they came out and cranked it up. Yeah, oh, they, that's
11: crank, true. they cranked yeah. it up.
2: Okay. They are the guest, and clearly they were hot. Yeah. That's why they, turn, they didn't turn it up for kicks, you know what I mean? <laughs> <But> they didn't <laughs> just true. get
1: up and start flushing the toilet repeatedly for no reason. <laughs> All right, yeah.
2: so this uh, last question comes from Don. He sent it to us through Twitter. And Don writes, how should we handle curb sneakers, mm-hmm. those drivers that go into the right turn only lane, alongside you, only in order to jump the line and cut you off and continue straight ahead? Ugh. Now, I know you live in L.A. This now. doesn't
1: happen to me that much really What? I I mean it has I I guess I've just always assumed that those people were confused (laughs) like they wanted to make a right turn and then went oh shoot this is the wrong street because that's something that would happen to me but you're You're you were raised
2: in the Midwest right yes because that the fact that you would assume that that person was Uh, lost instead of being an evil subhuman yes which we all immediately assume in Los
0: Angeles (laughs) yeah
1: no I never thought of it as a malicious act but if it is like that sucks like I don't know (laughs) what Ben I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do to that person I'm sorry well
0: you're welcome Diablo
2: We've, we've opened your
0: Eyes. No, it's
1: yeah.
2: not. We ruined Diablo. She probably kept her sanity in LA all these years because she didn't know that was
0: happening.
1: I assume everybody is doing their best.
0: Nope. You're just, uh, everyone's out to get you. You assumed wrong. But Diablo Cody, thank you for being charmingly uncynical <laughs> and for telling our audience how to behave.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Diablo Cody, she wrote the new movie Ricky and the Flash. It stars Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein, and it comes out in theaters next weekend. Also, news just broke that Diablo will be working with comedian Tig Notaro on a new scripted comedy for Amazon.
2: All right. And folks, maybe you didn't know curb sneaking was an evil act by evil people. We did. That's right, we did. Maybe there's some other unexplained phenomena you'd like us to weigh in on. If so, send your etiquette questions to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, or call our newly revamped Super Duper Dinner Party hotline. Mm. The number is 929-335-DNLD.
0: Our guest, Bob Cat Goldthwaite made a huge splash as a comedian in the 1980s and 90s, but he's since made a name for himself as a filmmaker, and his manic stage persona is a far cry from his latest project. It's a deeply empathetic documentary about his friend, the legendary comedian and activist Barry Crimmins. It's called Call Me Lucky. It was nominated for a Grand Jury Prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And, Bob, I'm very glad to have you here to talk about it.
10: Well, thank you. I don't know if I am that well-known as someone who makes movies, but... Um... Really? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I mean, Call Me Lucky is the seventh movie that I've directed. But, you know, my movies make hundreds of dollars, (laughs) actual hundreds. I'm
0: pretty sure you're understating those figures, but uh, let's talk about this movie, which I'm sure will do better than that. Uh, What's the genesis of it? The
10: genesis of this movie, I've known Barry since I was 16. And if you see the movie, you know, Barry's a political advocate, but it, it also deals with his child abuse. Barry took AOL to task in the early 90s because they're allowing child pornography to be exchanged and ended up embarrassing AOL all the way to the floor of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And when that happened in the early 90s, I wanted to make the movie then. Oh, my God. Because I thought, this is a Capra story. I Actually, the earlier draft was called Mr. Crimmins Goes to Washington. Yeah. He's, not a, he's not quite like Jimmy Stewart. No, no. <laughs> it's a modern twist. There isn't a—Barry's got a, a lot of charm, but it's not a folksy down-home <laughs> charm. It's, no. It's very aggressive and— um, He's actually really fascinating, don't you think? I
0: I do. Actually, I wanted to, you mentioned that you met him as a teenager. Uh, You were a comedian. I think you met him. Yeah,
10: he was hosting a comedy show, and Tom Kenny and I, who, I don't want to name drop, but that's SpongeBob SquarePants. He's the
0: voice of SpongeBob.
10: and, And a lot of other things. But yeah, Tommy and I have known each other since first grade. We saw this ad in the Syracuse New Times where this guy was looking for comedians, and we we show up and Barry's expecting some men and it's two teenage kids and he puts us on stage and it's in the movie. That's the origin of the nickname Bobcat because folks called him Bearcat and Tommy and I, being sarcastic, little angst-ridden teens, said, oh, that's funny. My name's Bobcat and wow. <laughs> he's Tomcat. But your
0: first move is to make fun of this dude in some way. fun of this
10: guy, yes, who uh, her, later on uh, turns into my mentor.
0: Well, tell me, tell me about meeting him for that first time. You show up at the club. Oh. This is not uh, you know, your typical Gent.
10: It was a club that was in a basement and he was sitting on stage with a fold up desk and he's got a beer and he's smoking and in my mind when I think back on it just smoke was coming out of everything like his <laughs> ears and like his own uh, Blue Oyster Cult show or something so he, yeah there was like smoke coming out of his nostrils that was for sure but and he looks up and he's like Ugh, the kitty core I can't, the first thing he said was actually a curse, and then he called us the Kitty core. And then uh, he put us on, and he, he says that we did well, and he kept us... I think he just really needed bodies, you know, but... <laughs> just but
0: any co- Anyone could have wandered in Yeah, anybody an who street. said they were comedians. Let me, let yeah. me ask you about his, the comedy that he's doing at that time. Margaret Cho in the film mentions that he comes from this little mini-movement kind of of comedians in that era that she calls truth-tellers. Explain what she means by that and how that applies to Barry.
10: Well, Barry even in the earlier days still had some political content in his his nightclub act eventually just became completely political. He really lost all interest in doing any kind of uh punchlines. Yeah, or you know, where are you from? What do you do? You know, the, the, the joke that most people mangle that's the typical Barry joke, if you really want to get into who he is, is the line, um, people say if you don't love America, why don't you leave it? And Barry says, because I don't want to be a victim of its foreign policies.
0: Yeah, he didn't Uh, pull many punches.
10: Oh, no, no. Especially, you know, people who were heroes of mine, like Steve Martin and Monty Python and Robin and Andy Kaufman. And comedy was pretty silly in the late 70s. And here's this guy who was heavy, heavy political satirist.
11: Can you believe Exxon actually called a press conference to tell us that they're going to pass the cost of the oil spill along to us, the consumers? No kidding. I was sure the vice president at Exxon would have insisted on paying for the entire affair. No, no, no. Your money's no good here. Those otters are on me. I've got those. Did you hear what? Uh, did you hear what uh, the chief of staff, uh, John Sununu, said about this oil spill? He said, "Hey, nobody ever mentions how much oil didn't spill out of the Valdez." Once in a while, you need an up guy like John Sununu. You know, is the tanker half empty?
0: Halfway through this movie, the story suddenly changes from being about this revolutionary comic to being about this guy who very publicly is wrestling with his demons. In the middle of a stand-up set, he tells people that he was abused as a child. Were you there that night?
10: No, but you know what's interesting, too, about Barry? His act almost never is it personal. It's always very topical. So so for him to do a set that was so personal is jarring enough.
0: What do you remember the reaction being of the comedy community at Oh, that it
10: moment? was, um, people were concerned about him. Like, it was that far, like, you know, it, I they heard... They thought he was
0: gonna lose it?
10: Or? Yeah, they thought he had lost it. To do this on stage, yeah, I mean, if you think about that, it's a comedy show, and then someone discloses this, you know, heavy thing about child rape. You know, I truly thought I, I was gonna lose Barry around then. I really kind of did. So that story alone, him bouncing back, it, it makes him a fascinating subject.
0: Well, let me ask, actually, as I was watching this movie, it reminded me of a movie you made back in 2011, God Bless America. Here you've got a movie about a guy who has rage against the way that his innocence was stolen and kind of channels it towards being a political activist, fighting for you know the rights of innocent people everywhere. Then you've got God Bless America, which is about a guy who's also sort of angry at the callousness of the world and maybe channels his rage and more inappropriate ways like yeah. murdering people I would,
10: <laughs> it is a satire and you shouldn't be agreeing with everything the protagonist in god bless america does and oh, says I hope not. Seeing that <laughs> he's a homicidal maniac I got that. you know the, it's a very violent movie about kindness is, is what i describe. god mm. bless america
0: all of that was kind of preamble to my question which is why would you say this is a preoccupation of yours the way people channel anger
10: there's no the anger is just in me <laughs> and it percolates onto the into the movies i make but you know i think world's greatest dad and call me lucky have have the thing in common which is an adult man uh and i guess god bless america uh taking charge of their life later on in life t- deciding this doesn't work for me and changing who they are Why and, why does that resonate with you so much i think My own story, you know, I do know that 10 years ago or more, I kind of just quit. You know, I I jokingly say I stopped acting the same time people stopped hiring me. So (laughs) it worked out well. But that's really not the (laughs) truth. I actually stopped pursuing things. When I learned that I don't have to go on auditions and I don't have to do these things that weren't making me happy, uh, you know, I, I, I believe it's really important to quit and quit often you know you quit Hmm. if you quit long enough you're gonna end up someplace you don't want to leave
0: you said earlier Barry Crimmins is your mentor what's maybe the biggest lesson you've taken from him
10: um thy own self be true you know Barry it's important to be able to hit the pillow at night to have solace in speaking his mind even at the risk of alienating a lot of people um, He's a terrible influence. I mean, I, it would have been much more lucrative if it was just some guy who just wanted me to be funny all the time and have nothing to say in my act. Oh my goodness, I'd be living in the boo right now. I'd have a nice, I'd have a nice spread on the beach.
0: Bobcat Goldthwaite, his documentary "Call Me Lucky," I should say, is as funny as it is at times harrowing, and it hits theaters this coming Friday, August seventh.
2: All right, and folks, that concludes this week's installment of The Dinner Party Download. We should note next week's show will be an encore broadcast as we take much-needed vacations. Mm. But we've got all new stuff in the works for our podcast subscribers, including our annual All Icebreaker show. That's right. It is a
0: grin-inducing cavalcade of mostly terrible gags, told to us by the likes of Mel Brooks, Marion Cotillard, Oscar the Grouch himself, and many more. It's only for podcasters. You can subscribe for free on iTunes.
2: Catch you there. Meanwhile, Jackson Musker is our producer. Nina Potok is our associate producer. And Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Bill Lance-Engineered, our executive producer, is Peter Clowney. See you later. Bon appétit.